0: All right, Kyoto. Good morning, nice to have you here, whether you're here live at Botany or watching this in Hastings at the Manahira's house or listening to this or watching this online, it's awesome to have you with us. We've been in this series on the book of Jonah for the last uh, four weeks, it'll be five weeks in total and we end that today. But four weeks ago when we started into the Old Testament book of Jonah, I played a, a video for us called "God called God's Story. Um, Jonah, just to help people if you weren't familiar with the story, to just orient yourself um, to the story. And I don't know how many of you were here for that first service and and watched that, but you may or may not have realized that the the little video that they've done for kids, God's story of Jonah, actually finished prematurely. In fact, it, it went this way, I wrote it down. It finishes this way, when God saw they stopped doing bad, talking about the Ninevites, Sorry, they stopped doing bad things and were really sorry he decided not to destroy them. And that's the story of Jonah. And that's how that little clip ended. Well, it does a little quick recap at the end, but that's how it ended. And if you compare that video with the book of Jonah in our Bible, what you find is that they end the story at the end of chapter 3. Now, sometimes kids' storybooks and, and, and videos and that kind of thing do that because trying to get into different parts of the story may not be appropriate for children or maybe a little bit harder to explain to kids. And so, this particular one, God's story, ends at the end of chapter 3. I would argue, though, this morning, especially for adults, that finishing the story of Jonah at the end of Jonah chapter 3 actually robs us of the main point of Jonah. Because the story is going to hit its crescendo in chapter 4. It's going to kind of climax in chapter 4. And if you were to take Jonah chapter 4 out and just finish the book of Jonah the way that this gorgeous little video does, I think it would actually rob you. Because what we're going to see this morning as we finish out this series in chapter 4, that actually that really kind of brings the whole story to a close. So if you've got a Bible with you today, either paper, uh, on your phone, on your iPad, whatever that is, I want you to come and open it up to Jonah chapter 4. You might have it in your journal if you've been studying Jonah chapter 4 already that week, and that would be fantastic as well. But we're in Jonah chapter 4, and and I want to argue that Jonah 4 is key because what God is doing in this book is he's converting Obviously, Gentile sailors and and Gentile people of Nineveh to him. He's bringing them into relationship with him. But the main person that God is after in this book is the prophet Jonah himself. And God's not done with sailors and Ninevites coming to belief in him. Because the one that that God is really after is Jonah, And until Jonah has a change of heart, the book isn't done, it's not over, the story isn't finished because it's Jonah that God's after, it's Jonah that God is pursuing, it's this wayward prophet that's gone off the rails that God really wants to see have a change of heart and be transformed. And that's what we're going to see here uh, as this, this final chapter and this key chapter of the story unfolds. Now, if you've studied Jonah chapter 4 for yourself this past week, and I hope you have, and taken up that challenge, I hope what you saw was a little repetition going on in Jonah 4. Two times, or actually three times, Jonah declares that he would rather die. And then in t- two of those, God immediately responds with a very important question. The question is, is it right for you to be angry? And he says that to Jonah in verse 4. And then he says it again to Jonah in verse 9. And that repeated question actually helps us divide the story up into three key scenes. The first two scenes will end with this question being asked of Jonah. So the first scene then is in the first four verses. It will end with God's question, is it right for you to be angry? And this first scene is all about Jonah's anger over the city of Nineveh. So if you were here last week or you've been studying Jonah for yourself, you know at the end of chapter three, Jonah had very reluctantly obeyed God, gone into the great city of Nineveh, walked through it, pretty much announcing God's judgment on it. Uh, my belief is that there was no announcement of grace or, or forgiveness or the possibility that if they repent, Yahweh may relent. I don't think Jonah declared any of that. I think Jonah just declared judgment on them. That's how he preached it. And then incredible... I think a far bigger miracle than him being preserved in a big fish for three days. The big miracle is the entire city of Nineveh repents and comes to faith in the God of Israel. It's this unbelievable story of revival. Billy Graham never had this kind of success. Uh, No one has. Jonah's the only preacher in the history of the world to have 100% of his listeners actually listen to him and do what he said. The rest of us who preach for a living are all envious of Jonah because Jonah's just got it made. Um, and that's where then chapter 4 becomes really interesting. Have a look at it. With you've got your Bible open, look at how Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 begins. In fact, what's the first word of this chapter? But. So immediately, if you were studying this for yourself, should be a circle around that word because that immediately tells you something's going to go wrong. Nineveh's converted. The entire city has come to belief in the God of Israel. And then you start the final chapter with but you know that actually this is not going to go very well, this next piece. And the reason it doesn't is if you read the rest of this opening verse, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What is the this pointing back to? What is the this that he is angry about? Is he angry that the Ninevites repented? Kind of. But I think that this is just going back to the previous context, the previous verse, which is verse 10, which is God's response to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repented, and then God said, fair enough, and he relented, and he didn't send the judgment on them. He forgave them. And this made Jonah very angry. He is completely unimpressed with God's forgiveness of wicked Ninevites. And then you read in verse 2, He became angry, and he prayed to Yahweh. This is only the second time in the whole book you read the words, Jonah prayed. The first time is chapter 1, verse 17, which really should be the beginning of chapter 2. Sorry, it's in chapter 2, I think. Chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God. In the belly of the fish, he prayed. And that prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving to God. The only other time he prays is now. But this time, it's not a prayer of thanksgiving to God. It's quite the opposite. It's a prayer of anger and rebuke to God. And I think what we're meant to see here is the way that the whole um, book of Jonah is set up in symmetry. I talked last week, let me put this up. I talked last week about how chapter one and chapter three mirror each other. And I think chapter two and chapter four do the same thing. So we noticed last week that um, the opening verses of Jonah 1 and the opening verses of Jonah 3 are almost verbatim. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah. The only difference is, in chapter 1, Jonah ran. In chapter 3, Jonah obeyed. But both times, having... Begun with Yahweh and Jonah, both times then in chapter 1 and chapter 3, it's mainly about Jonah's dealings with Gentiles that he comes across. In the opening chapter, it's the pagan sailors. In chapter 3, it's the pagan Ninevites. Both times, Jonah ends up somewhat reluctantly telling these pagans about his God. And both times, they believe. Both times, they believe so much that they actually show Israelite um, Um, actions that that show their belief and repentance. So in chapter 1, the sailors make sacrifices and vows to God. In chapter 3, the Ninevites fast and put on sackcloth, exactly the way Israelites would respond to their God. So they come to belief. Now what I think we're meant to see in chapters 2 and chapter 4 is the symmetries going on, because this is the only two times where Jonah prays. So now this is Jonah interacting with Yahweh. And in chapter 2 he prays a prayer of thanks, a psalm of thanksgiving. But in chapter 4 he prays a lament psalm. He prays a prayer of anger and rebuke to God. And the whole book is is running in symmetry as God tries to deal with uh, Jonah and try and bring Jonah along to the place he needs him to be. So He prays, and this is what he prays, verse 2. Isn't this what I said, Yahweh, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is the big shock of the book. If you've never read the book before, and even if you have, you might not have actually clicked to this before. The reason Jonah ran, we're never told in chapter 1. We assume he ran from God because he was scared of the Ninevites. They were the Nazis of the ancient world. He didn't fancy getting skinned alive that particular day. So he ran. But we're never told that. We just assume that. It's only now in chapter 4 we're told the reason why Jonah took off and ran for Tarshish instead of obeying God and going to Nineveh. And it's not that he was afraid it's not that he was scared of the Ninevites and worried they were going to skin him alive. He ran because he was scared that God would be forgiving. He ran because he didn't want to end up in Nineveh preaching about Yahweh and have the people of Nineveh repent so that God would forgive them. He runs out of hatred for the Ninevites Because he doesn't want to give the Ninevites even a slim possibility of belief in Yahweh and forgiveness and grace. The reason he runs is out of a complete lack of grace and love towards the Ninevites. He's not afraid of them. He just doesn't want any of them to believe. He doesn't want any of them to experience forgiveness. He wants the whole lot of them to rot in hell. That's basically why Jonah ran. In fact, he quotes here... Back to God, one of the most important sayings about God of the entire Bible. He quotes this foundational verse from Exodus 34. I argue, and I've argued in other sermons and other contexts, that this is the most important description of God in the Old Testament. This is God's description of Himself to Moses where Moses had asked God to reveal his glory to him, and Moses, uh, God appears, uh, and it gives Moses really a glimpse of his being, and, he, and then God says this to him, the Lord, the Lord, again, that's capital letters, so that's God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And by repeating his name twice, Yahweh is saying to Moses in this story, this is who I am, this is what is at the heart of Yahweh, the essence of my character and being is this. I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. Yahweh reveals himself to Moses this way and says, this is who I am, at the core of my being. Yahweh is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and yet he does not leave guilt unpunished. This becomes key right through the Old Testament. Time and time again, the prophets and the poets of Israel will come back to this passage. One example, this is David in Psalm 103, one of the most famous verses on forgiveness in the Bible. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. See, he's quoting Exodus. And then David then kind of responds to this um, understanding of God. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. God, Yahweh, does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. David, go on and sing this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We just sung about that this morning in those songs. Calvary, he's, he's covered it all. That is Yahweh, and that is the essence of who Yahweh is. And time and time again, that gets celebrated in the Old Testament scriptures that God is this compassionate and gracious God. That's what Jonah's quoting. But he is quoting it negatively. He's quoting it back to Yahweh and saying, see, I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have come to Nineveh. I knew that at the end of the day, you're a soft God. I just knew the Ninevites would stick some sackcloth on and they'd sit in some dust for a few days and you'd be compassionate and gracious and forgiving and loving to those scumbags. That's why I took off in the first place, God. I didn't want even a chance that you might actually forgive these people and then you force me here You get me thrown in a storm, vomited by a fish, so I finally come and obey you, and look what's happened. All of them. You've been gracious and forgiving to the whole lot, God. And then I love verse 3. Now, Yahweh, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. It's not really the image of a prophet of God, is it? Well, actually it is. Verse 3 is an echo of another story of another prophet. Prophet Elijah in 1 Kings, right after he has defeated the prophets of Baal, 450 of them against him, and they do this massive thing on Mount Carmel, and fire comes and consumes Elijah's altar, and then Queen Jezebel turns around and says, Elijah, you are so dead. I'm going to hunt you down and slaughter you, and Jonah runs. Oh, sorry, Elijah runs for his life. In the very next chapter of 1 Kings, we read Elijah was afraid, and he went a day's journey into the wilderness. Jonah's in the wilderness, by the way. We're about to find out. And he came to a broom bush. We're about to hear about a plant and Jonah. It's a lot of similarities. And Elijah sat down under the plant and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Yahweh. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Massive similarities between the Elijah story and the Jonah story at this point. But there's one big difference. Elijah prays, God, take my life because he feels like he's a complete failure. He has worked hard. He has performed these miracles. He has preached to the northern kingdom of Israel until he's blue in the face. And he has had, how many people convert, you know? None. None. He's had zero results. And he just gets to the end of himself in this particular story, and he sits under a bush in the desert and says, God, take my life. I can't do it. Jonah's the exact opposite. He's sitting in a desert, as we're out to see, under a bush, to God. But Jonah's had 100% success. Elijah's had enough, because no one would listen and respond. Jonah's had enough, because everyone listened and responded. And so he comes to God, and he says, God, take my life. It's not worth living. I just want to die. Jonah, at this moment, to me, The image I have is of a petulant toddler, a two-year-old boy stomping his feet and throwing the toys out of the cot and weeping out of frustration that he hasn't got his way. And Yahweh is like a patient father who has done Jeff and Roz's parenting course, (laughs) who gently and graciously and quietly talks to his toddler, trying to help him get out of his mood and grow up. And that's the context in which Yahweh responds to Jonah's, I want to die, in verse 4. But Yahweh replied, is it right for you to be angry? What does Jonah say? End of verse 4. Notice that? Nothing. Nothing. Jonah seems to major in not responding to God. God commanded in chapter one. We don't hear of Jonah talking to God. Jonah just took off. Now here, Jonah and Yahweh are having a conversation. Jonah's throwing a tantrum, throwing his toys out of the cot, stomping his feet. I knew you'd be forgiving God. And Yahweh says, do you have any right to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah doesn't say a word. And so God decides to give him an object lesson. And in the next scene, which goes through to verse 9, because it's going to end with God asking the exact same question, is it right for you to be angry? There's a scene now involving an object lesson of a plant. And God is going to use this plant to teach Jonah a lesson about the city. So I want to tell this part of the story from under a plant. Hold on. you just got to make this kind of thing work, you know? Oh, hold on. Oh, awesome. Okay. You see it? All righty. Okay, so this is the second scene. Have a look at, don't look at me, you you know, just have a look at Jonah 4, look at what happens. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. The NIV does a really good job and puts this in the past tense. Some English translations make it sound like Jonah now goes out of the city and sits in the east. I think the NIV's right. I think he'd already gone out. This is where he had been already arguing with God. And there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God. Now, notice here, it's Lord in capital letters again, Yahweh, and then it's his title God, which is Elohim in the Hebrew text. And they get put together in verse 6. Yahweh Elohim. And it's because this is so beautifully written that the way God is referred to gets changed through the story. If you look carefully at verses 1 to 4, it's Yahweh. Verse 6, it's Yahweh Elohim. It introduces the idea that Yahweh is Elohim. He is the great creator God of all that is. See, in, um, in Genesis, the first creation story of Genesis 1 uses God's title Elohim because it's a description of God's power as the creator. In Genesis 2, the second creation story, it uses Yahweh because it's emphasizing the relationship that human beings have with the God who made them. And when the Old Testament wants to emphasize the relationship with God and his love, it goes Yahweh. When it wants to emphasize God's great power, it uses Elohim. So here in verse six, it puts them together. But if you just cast your eye down the rest of this scene, verses seven, eight, and nine, it's all God. It's kind of like God's almost here, and as he teaches this object lesson, is stepping back from being Yahweh, the God of love, and he's showing his power to Jonah. And then, if you look at verses 10 and 11, as he wraps this up, it's back to Yahweh again. So, you have a subtle change in the way God is being represented in this story as God almost steps back slightly from Jonah to teach him this lesson he's about to teach. So, verse 6 the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease the discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. So a few things here. Scholars have tried to identify what the plant is. We don't know. What kind of fish was it that swallowed Jonah? We don't know. What kind of plant grew? We don't know. Some people have tried to argue particular plants because it seems to grow up so fast. But I actually think the plant here is a miracle. Verse 10 says it sprung up overnight. There is no plant in the world that springs up overnight enough to give a guy shade. So this is another miracle that happens in the story. This plant, one night while Jonah's sleeping, suddenly, boom, oh, and he wakes up and he's got shade. It's just magnificent. Yahweh provided this, and that's another key word. Oh, I've left my little clicker up there. Hold on. Just grab that. It's kind of weird wearing sunglasses in church, I have to say. Um, this word, provided is really key. Um, It's used four times. And you might have noticed this as you studied Jonah 4 for yourself this week. You might have noticed this in these cluster of verses in chapter 4. Yahweh provided a leafy plant and a worm and a scorching east wind. And it's the same word from back in chapter 1 that he provided a huge fish. It shows the sovereignty of God in what's happening in this story, that God's fully in control. So God had provided a fish to save him and now he provides a plant to protect him and make him comfortable. And shortly he's about to provide a worm and a wind to make him very uncomfortable. Is the idea of the story. So he provided this plant and he made it grow up over Jonah and it gave him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And I love this last bit of verse six. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. This, you, you, don't, you can't see this in the English text, but this is where the Hebrew text is interesting. The word great has been really important all the way through the story. In fact, we've titled the sermon titles uh, A Great Call, A Great Storm, A Great Fish, A Great City, Today, A Great Lesson, because this word great is used multiple times through the book. Everything's great. The storm's great. The fish is great. The city is great. But so are the emotions in the book. And there's three places, actually, where the word great is used to describe their emotions, and the Hebrew's awesome. This is what it does. Back in chapter 2, remember when the sailors come to faith, and it said they had a great fear. In the Hebrew text, this is what it literally says. The sailors feared with a great fear. That's how it describes just how afraid they were, but this fear was now a reverent awe of Yahweh. And then in chapter 1 of this chapter... Jonah's not just angry. He was angry with a great anger. Like he was spewing. And now in chapter six, uh, verse six, he was happy with great happiness. He, you know, Jonah was just like, this is this is good. This is good, you know? Leafy tree. Nice Bundaberg. It's originally, um, Hebrew for Babylon. (laughs) And it makes you stop and go, hold on. Kind of get why he was enjoying this. But it doesn't make complete sense that a, a, a little leafy plant would give him that much satisfaction. And I was thinking about that actually this morning, looking at this again, and I wonder if he was happy with a great happiness. Because this miraculous plant appeared and it made Jonah feel like maybe God was blessing him after all. God had had caused this plant to just miraculously blossom in the desert to give him comfort. And I wonder if Jonah took that as a sign that God had heard his prayer and maybe God was about to rescind his forgiveness of the Ninevites. I just wonder if there's more to this great happiness, that is the equivalent level of his great anger, I just wonder if he took this as a sign that that actually God was going to come through the way he wanted him to come through. But God doesn't. Instead, God does something else. Look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, see God, it's not Yahweh at this point, it's the powerful creator God provided, there's the word again, this time a worm, which literally, the word is, attacked the plant so that it withered. And then when the sun rose, God provided, again, a scorching east wind. And the the sun literally attacked Jonah's head. It's the same word. Blazed is a really good translation in the context in the NIV, but it's actually the same word. He he provided a worm that attacked the plant, and then he provided an east wind to make it hot, and then he got the sun to attack Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted what? (laughs) To die. And he said, same words as verse 3, it would be better for me to die than to live and God said to Jonah is it right for you to be angry exactly the same question apart from the three words at the end is it right for you to be angry about the plant this time Jonah answers it is he said and I'm so angry I wish I was dead One commentator I read, Leslie Allen, describes this brilliantly, what's going on. He says, Jonah's attitude demands of God that he destroy. So God does just that. To see how Jonah likes his theology coming true in the physical realm. See, God's angry, sorry, Jonah's angry at God because God did not destroy Nineveh. That's what he wants. So God here gives him an object lesson gives him a lovely leafy plant to make him comfortable and then God destroys the plant as though to say to Jonah this is what I can do are you sure this is the way you want me to behave? Do you want to deal with me as Elohim, the all-powerful creator or do you like dealing with me as Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate God? I'm, I'm both, I'm all of those but what do you like? Do you like a God who destroys and wreaks vengeance, like I've just done to your precious plant? Or do you prefer a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love? And then God now applies the lesson. Look at verses 10 and 11. Yahweh's response to Jonah's anger. Yahweh said, see, that name's back. Because now he's treating Jonah with the same love and compassion and graciousness that he's dealt with Nineveh. Because he wants Jonah to be converted, not in terms of faith in Yahweh, but in terms of having Yahweh's heart. And he says, you've been concerned about this plant, but you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? He says, Jonah, listen. You're concerned about a plant. You didn't even plant the seed for it. You didn't do anything to tend it. You didn't water it for a couple of months to make it grow. You didn't plant fertilizer around it. You you didn't do anything. just appeared. And because it made you comfortable, you show great concern, Jonah, for your plant. I am Yahweh. Shouldn't I have even more concern for this great city? 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. I thought that that was a description of the population. In fact, I think I said that last week. But in reading about this last last week, I've come across some scholars who argue something fascinating. To not know your right hand from your left is not so much a physical thing as a moral indicator Joshua 23, Joshua said to the people, be firm then to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. To know the right hand on the left is a moral thing to say, you know, to to know what's right and wrong. Now, I got that and I thought it meant that the Ninevites didn't know right from wrong. But if that was the case, then God would be unfair to judge them. They did know what was right and wrong. And a couple of scholars that I read this week said, you know what that is? It's probably a reference to the number of children in Nineveh. This is not the the total population. In Nineveh, especially the three cities in that valley, was actually bigger than 120,000 people. This is probably a reference to the number of children who hadn't yet reached the age where they would know what was right and wrong. And Yahweh is, is now talking to Jonah, saying, Jonah, you show concern over a plant you had nothing to do with. And over here, I've got this great city filled with people made in my image, filled with animals, notice that at the end, that I care about, and filled with 120,000 children who haven't yet reached the age where they know what's right and wrong. And if you can show concern for your plant... Shouldn't I, as the one who created all of this, show love and concern for these people? And look at Jonah's answer in verse 12. There is no verse 12. Because the story ends. And we don't know Jonah's response. My hunch is that Jonah repented. Because unless the sovereign God gave the full story to another prophet to write this, which is possible, I think either Jonah wrote this book or he told the story to someone else who wrote the book. But I think that suggests that Jonah came around. I can't prove that. That's just my hunch. But it's kind of like Mark's gospel, which most scholars say was based on Peter's sermons. Mark's gospel is the one that most shows Peter's failures and stupidity. It's kind of like that sometimes in the Bible. The authors of scripture, when they write about themselves, are quite willing to show themselves in a really bad light to get the lesson across but we're not told Jonah's response because, see, I think this book is meant to be a mirror. Because at the end of the day, when Jonah or whoever wrote this book, they wrote it for the people of Israel. And the point was not to know what Jonah's response was. It was for the people of Israel to read this book and think about what's my response. How do I feel about the Gentile nations around us? and then for later generations of Christians like you and I to read the book, and for us to go, what would my response be? Because Jonah's a mirror. The book is designed for us to reflect our own hearts and lives. And the key lesson of this chapter is, I think, the key lesson of this whole book That God's great grace and compassion towards me is meant to result in great grace and compassion towards others who don't know him yet or who aren't like me or who I don't particularly love. But the point is, if I've received great grace and compassion from God, then I should have that same grace and compassion towards others. See, that's what's going on in the symmetry of the book. Because when Jonah prays at the end of chapter 2, he prays and he writes and he sings this exquisite psalm that's deeply rooted in other psalms from the book of Psalms that expresses his great gratitude and thanks for God saving him. When he's in the belly of the fish... Remember, he's not praying and asking God to to save him. He's thanking God that God's already saved him from drowning. And he's celebrating the wonderful grace of God. You are the God, Yahweh, who lifted my life from the pit. And I will make sacrifices to you. And I will vow vows to you. And you are awesome and gracious and compassionate, abounding in love. And then he gets to chapter 4. And he goes, oh, God. You're gracious and compassionate and forgiving and abounding in love to them. And the whole point of what God does with this object lesson of a plant and this challenge to Jonah as he sits there and fumes is, wait a minute, you're grateful for my grace and compassion and forgiveness to you, and yet you're not willing to extend that to others who need it. When the reality is the opposite, If you have been forgiven so much, if you have been given so much, if God has been so gracious and so good and so forgiving to you, Jonah, why should he not be like that to others? And why should you not be like that to others? And that's where this whole book has got to but it's left hanging at the end. Because at the end of the day, this book is not just about Jonah. There's also a book about me. And there's also a book about you. So as we finish this series, I want to reflect one more time. I am Jonah. Four reflections as we finish from Jonah and the plant. Number one, I am Jonah when I get angry at God for not bending to my will. I mean, that's what's going on in those first few verses of this chapter, isn't it? Jonah is getting mad at God because God won't do what Jonah wants him to do. God infuriatingly is choosing to be God. When really, Jonah would like him to be much more like him. Now, I can safely say that I have never been angry about God for not roasting someone that I'd like to have roasted. I can quite honestly say that. But there have been numerous times that I have been angry at God for not doing what I would like him to do. Many of you will know that Rochelle suffered from a condition called fibromyalgia for 19 years. And there were days and weeks and periods during that 19 years before she was healed of that where I cried out to God in tears as she lay in bed with absolutely no energy. And I got really angry at God. Not angry that he wouldn't roast someone that I wanted to be roasted, but angry that he wouldn't heal someone that I knew he loved more than I did. I got frustrated with God when he wouldn't come through the way that I wanted him to. When I had a plan for this is what I want you to do, God, and God didn't answer the prayers the way I wanted him to. And I got really mad, often. And there are still times today not now around Rochelle's health, but other things in life where things don't go the way I wanted them to, where my prayers aren't answered. And I love the brutal honesty of this book where Jonah's quite willing to lay out, you know, his anger at God. Because this is us, isn't it? We all get angry at God when God refuses to be bent to what we want. Second reflection, I am Jonah when my theology is correct, but it hasn't transformed my life. Jonah as a prophet knew the scriptures. He is quoting verbatim Exodus 34. He knows the stories of Israel. His psalm in chapter 2 has allusions to at least 10 different psalms in the book of Psalms. He knows the Bible, and he knows theology inside out, but it's never changed his heart. And that's a huge warning to us, that we can have the right beliefs, We can can understand however much we understand and can explain things and know the Bible however well we know it. We can have great theology. But if that theology and that truth of the Bible isn't changing our hearts, it isn't transforming our lives, it isn't making us mirror the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, then there's something seriously wrong. Not with our theology, but with the way we're letting that theology change us. Because I'm Jonah. When my theology's right, but it hasn't transformed me. Third reflection. Well, Can we go back? Okay. Can I get you to do this, Michael? You're going to need to flick it back. I don't know how I miraculously did that. No, you, Michael, you're going to have to actually click onto the right slide towards the end of the sermon. You can't just you can't scroll backwards with the arrows, you need to use the mouse and click on the correct slide. Thank you, Mel. Awesome. Isn't that great? Brilliant. Thank you so much. Third reflection, I am Jonah when I accept God's grace and don't extend it. I'm Jonah when I am incredibly thankful God saved me, but I don't extend that same grace to others. We are Jonah whenever we are grateful that God's forgiven us, but we hold on to bitterness in our hearts against someone else and refuse to forgive them. I'm Jonah when I am so grateful that God has saved me but I don't really give a fig about the lost people around me who haven't experienced that grace yet. I'm Jonah every time I'm saying thank you on one hand but not passing that on. Final one. I am Jonah. When I love things more than people. The irony of this whole chapter is that Jonah was more passionate about a plant than about people. And it's meant to be ironic and it's meant to kind of cause us to snigger slightly until we realise this is us. We're more concerned about the house we live in than the people around us. We're more worried about our jobs and careers and climbing the corporate ladder than we are about the people we work with who don't know Jesus. We get more excited about the fun we're going to have and the next experience we're going to do and the next holiday we're going to take than we are about the neighbours around us who don't know him yet. We're concerned about our money and our power and our success and our joy and our happiness. And yet God is saying, I'm concerned for that great city that you live in, where thousands don't know me yet. Why are you worrying, Jonah, about a plant or a house or a holiday or a job? I don't know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today but he's kind of done me over this week with this chapter. And I want to give you a moment with God to look at that list and think through the lessons of this chapter and this book, what it says to you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a moment just to talk with God on the basis of this, whatever you're feeling challenged or convicted about. And if you need to take some time to confess or to repent, then I want to invite you to do that. By the way, God is a compassionate and gracious God. And as we confess sin and repent of sin, we can also thank him for his grace and forgiveness that comes to us through Jesus. So do that. And after you've had a minute to do that, I just want to pray, and the band is just going to come and lead us in one song. We sometimes sing in our services, Lord, I need you, and I'm going to invite you in that last song to make that your prayer, and whether you want to stay seated for that song, whether you want to stand, whatever's whatever feels best for you, but I want to make invite you to make that our prayer as we finish the service together, and then... We'll have elders and pastors available at the front, and if you want to just pray with anyone, you're welcome to do that. Just take a minute with God, and then I'll pray and we'll have our closing song. Abba, Father, I am Jonah. I am so grateful for your grace and compassion and forgiveness to me. And yet I'm not very good about extending that to others. And Lord, you've heard every one of our prayers today. As we've come to you with this list in mind. Realising we're just like Jonah. On one hand so grateful for what you've done to us. But on another hand not yet transformed enough by that. To really make a huge difference in our lives. We confess today that we hang on to forgiveness, unforgiveness and bitterness when we shouldn't. We confess that we get angry at you when you don't do what we want when we want it. We confess that we don't extend your grace passionately towards those who don't know you yet. And God, we confess we love plants and houses and jobs and kids and holidays more than people. But thank you Father, you're not done with us yet either, just like Jonah. And we've been showing grace and mercy in Jesus. And you continue to give grace and mercy when we fail time and time again. So we claim the forgiveness of Jesus today. Thank you for your great grace and compassion towards us. And at the same time, we pray that that grace would continue to transform and change our hearts and lives for your glory. Amen.